Okay, guys, let's uh, gather back in. We'll get started. All right, the special position that America has, we covered some of that at the beginning, the creativity, the economics, the stability, um, that is something that is known as American exceptionalism. That's a term we got from Alexei de Tocqueville, who came here in 1831. We'll talk more about him in the morning. Uh, came here in 1831. He ended up writing the book in 1835. And when he saw all the things here, he said the conditions of the American is exceptional. I don't think any other nation will be able to attain what they've attained. So that's the phrase that professors hate today. But that's the phrase that we have used for a number of years, that America is different from other nations. And they say, no, it's not. Every nation is the same. It is not the same. I mean, one constitution for all those times. It's just not the same. Every 4th of July we have is a world's record. We've been 240 years since our revolution. Find anybody else that's done that. I mean, we are different, whether they like it or not. So having said that, you look at that, and as you look in historical works today, particularly in schools, if you get the question that says, who's responsible for that? Who are the leaders responsible for making America different from other nations? Invariably, you will get political leaders like uh, George Washington. You get folks like Thomas Jefferson. You get folks like John Hancock. You get folks like John Adams. And, and that's good. All these guys are really significant. But the difference is what we teach today is not what they taught back then. As a matter of fact, in 1818, a young historian named Hezekiah Niles came to John Adams. Now, Hezekiah Niles, his history book came out in 1822, but 1818 is writing it. And he, he gets a hold of old man Adams because he's now quite advanced in years. At this point, it's been 42 years since the American Revolution. And he gets a hold of Adams. He says, you know, our generation, we've really enjoyed what you guys have given us and what you've done for us. And we weren't back there. So tell me, who, who's responsible for what we enjoy today? Who, who's responsible for giving us? And, and Adams says, well, who's responsible for this? He said, well, right up top, you got the Reverend Dr. Samuel Cooper. And, of course, there's the Reverend Dr. Jonathan Mayhew. Oh, don't forget George Whitfield. And you got the Reverend Charles Chauncey. And he starts going through preachers. Now, we might know who Whitfield is today, but the chance that we know anything about Cooper or Mayhew or Chauncey, slim to none. And, yes, there's the eyewitness, and he's calling these preachers as, as part of the guys responsible. See, today we don't know preachers whether they're white or black. I mean, who in the world is, is folks like Richard Allen or Absalom Jones or... Uh, John Moran or Lemuel Haynes, we don't know. These are all founding preachers with a huge impact. Matter of fact, take somebody like Harry Hoosier. Now, Harry Hoosier was part of the First Great Awakening. You had those famous preachers like there. You had uh, the Wesleys, John and Charles, and you had As Bishop Asbury, and you had George Whitfield, and you had Samuel Davies, and you had Jonathan Edwards, all these famous preachers. And Harry Hoosier was one of them. As a matter of fact, Harry Hoosier drew crowds larger than the other guys. He drew crowds larger than Wesley's, larger than Asbury. He drew massive crowds. Benjamin Rush heard him preach. Benjamin Rush said, he's the greatest orator I've ever heard. Well, you've heard Patrick Henry. Or you've heard, he's the greatest one I've ever heard. Now, the difference with Harry Hoosier is he didn't want to preach where everybody else preached. He wanted to preach to people who really hadn't heard the gospel. So he goes out to the furthest, wildest west parts of America, and he would preach the gospel in the far, far, far west, out in Indiana. So he's out in Indiana, <laughs> and that was far west at the time. Um, by the way, does the word Hoosier seem familiar to anybody? See, what happens is he's preaching all across that wild man frontier out there with all those wild guys. And as they come to the Lord, 
and as they get converted and as their life changes, their friend goes, what happened to him? Uh, he's one of those Hoosiers. I wonder how many people in Indiana know they were named after a black evangelist. Probably none. You know? We don't get this kind of stuff today. We did back then. And that's why eyewitnesses who saw that pointed that. Why would John Adams say that these preachers are so responsible? Because when you look at the Declaration of Independence, we're going to look at that a whole lot more in the morning. Declaration of Independence starts with 155 words that set forth six principles of American government. After it says four, and every one of those principles, every clause in the Constitution goes back to affirm one of those six principles. Then it sets forth 27 grievances. And those 27 grievances, after the 155 words, talk about all of our rights that have been violated. Historians have documented that every single right set forth in the Declaration of Independence had been preached from the American pulpit prior to 1763. Now think about it. That means the Declaration of Independence is nothing more than a listing of the sermons we've been hearing for 20 years leading up to the Revolution. Whoever reads the Declaration of Independence like a sermon list? Well, we did back in the day. So we specifically dealt with all these areas because, after all, God did create a nation. I think its name was Israel, if I recall right. And he got them out there and said, guys, here's how I want my nation to run. He gave them 613 laws in the Bible. Those laws dealt with immigration. Those laws dealt with military. They dealt with health care. They dealt with economic taxation. They dealt with the type of leaders you have. They, they dealt with everything. There, there's not issues we're going to... They dealt with energy back then. There's all sorts of stuff. Jewish rabbis taught me so much about what the Bible teaches on so many areas I never understood. As a matter of fact, he said... You, he, he's, he's one of my best friends. And he said, you Christians, you don't speak Hebrew, so you don't get it. And I go, What? He said, when God first revealed himself to man, he did so in Hebrew. That's the language he spoke. That's the language he chose. He said, therefore, in Hebrew, we understand that every word in Hebrew has significant meaning. He said, for example, did you know that in Hebrew, it is impossible to say the word coincidence? It doesn't exist because it never crossed God's mind that something was coincidence. He plans and directs and orders it. He said, do you know, in Hebrew, you cannot say the word fair. Who cares what's fair? What happened to Jesus wasn't fair. That wasn't the point. What happened to Job wasn't fair. That wasn't the point. What happened to Joseph wasn't fair. You can't say the word fair. It doesn't exist in Hebrew. In Hebrew, you cannot say the word retirement. It doesn't exist. God told you to be productive. There's never a time when you're not to be productive. The one time in the New Testament over in Luke, the guy said, man, I've saved up stuff. Now I'm going to enjoy myself. You fool. Tonight your soul's required. That's retirement. Didn't work out too good for that guy. So there's never a time when you aren't productive. And, you know, he, he shows, and it's just fascinating as he goes through, and he's right. Those words all mean something. He said, and you guys, you don't get the Tower of Babel thing. He said, you look at that and say, oh, they were building Tower of Heaven and God confused. And he said, what is it that first got God's attention to that story? When did God first see what was going on? And he said, it was a Nimrod. And Nimrod's the guy who put it together, the Tower of Babel. He said, it's when Nimrod started saying, let us make bricks. And what's Bricks. Bricks, you put everything in a mold, and they all look the same. God has living stones. Every stone is different. Everything is unique. They're all individuals. Bricks are what man does to make everything. He said that's the first attempt at socialism in the Bible, and it really took God off. He didn't want socialism. He wanted the individualism. Whoa, that's fascinating stuff. So having said that, you look back, and as you look at how God set up that nation to run, which is a model for other nations that want to follow it, 
It covers everything back there. So that's what the declaration was, was it covered so much. Now, the first time that our founding fathers got together was actually two years earlier. It wasn't in 1776, it was in 1774. And when they got together on September the 6th and 7th, 1774, as they gather for the first time, and there's 40 of them, and the guys from Georgia have never met the guys from New York, and the guys from Virginia have not met the guys from Massachusetts. I mean, they're all new. We've been 13 different colonies. We hadn't been 13 states. We've been 13 separate nations. So they get together, and what do they do? They open with prayer. Now, it was not a dinky little prayer like we might pray today. According to historical records of the day, the opening prayer session in Congress ran for about two hours. And they didn't just open with prayer, they also opened with Bible study. John Adams specifically said, he, he wrote a, lot, a letter to his wife, Abigail, telling her that they'd studied four chapters in the Bible. That must they they pray, they studied four chapters of the Bible. He specifically told her, he said, man, he said, you got to see what God showed us out of Psalm 35. And it's kind of like unbelievable what's going on. And Psalm 35 is what we read. And man, God knew exactly what we needed today. He said, you got to read that. And so this is what he told his wife, Abigail. He said, I must beg you to read that Psalm. Read the 35th Psalm to your friends. Read it to your father. You got to let everybody know what God showed us in Congress this morning when we got together. But he continued. He says, we've appointed a continental fast, nationwide fast. Now, that's the, well, we'll get back to them. He said, we've appointed continental fast. He said, millions will be up on their knees at once before their great creator, imploring his forgiveness and blessings, as smiles on American council arms. Abigail, can you imagine the impact of having three million people pray and fast? That's what we had in the nation back then, it was three million. So that call to prayer and fasting uh, was the first call to prayer and fasting that we had. And it's interesting that what happened was there were 15 times that Congress called the nation to prayer in the American Revolution. And they, as with this one, they started, the, the first one was this one, it started with prayer and fasting. What's interesting, if you look in the records of Congress four, five, six months later, they go, you remember all the stuff we prayed and fasted about? Look how God answered our prayers. We need a day of thanksgiving. And so that's the next one that appears. It's a day of thanksgiving talking about how God answered the prayers. And then if you look in the records of Congress four, five, six months later, they say, man, stuff's going hard. We, we, we need another day of prayer and fasting. And that's what they do. And then about six months later, they got a day of prayer and thanksgiving. Fifteen times it goes back and forth. Fast and pray, thank God. Fast and pray, thank God. Back and forth this goes. And by the way, this is where I was telling you earlier that all this that went on, we had some 1,400 government-issued proclamations by, by 1815. I mean, this, we were into prayer. We were into the government calling us to prayer. Nothing secular in their thinking about government in that sense. They understand the government was not church, and government's not supposed to run church. And they had a biblical concept of separation church and state, but that doesn't mean it was secular. God said, um, Aaron, you're over the spiritual stuff. Moses, you're over the civil stuff. When King Uzziah in Second Chronicles 26 tried to bring church and state together, God struck him and said, no, 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 they're the priest. He's the king. We don't put those together. But you see what happens in 391 A.D., Emperor Theodosius did. He said, no, 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 I'll be, I'll be the pope. and I'll, He wasn't a pope back then, but he said, I'll be the head of the church and the head of the state. I'm already the emperor of the world. And so I now decree everyone is going to become a Christian or I'll kill you. And that was the first declaration. That's the first time church and state came together. And for the next 1,200 years, the government ran the church. It told us what doctrines. I have, I have early acts from the American Revolution on the British side where the British king and parliament are passing laws telling us who can and cannot take communion. The government tells us who can and can't take communion. The government is telling us who can and cannot be a preacher of the God. The government's telling us that. You see, that was church and state the wrong way. The way God had it, God's involved in everything. Nothing is secular. 
but you don't let the same person run two institutions. And so that was the way it was supposed to be. So they didn't have any trouble with God being all over everything we did in the civil arena. They just made sure the government couldn't tell the church what doctrines to practice. We didn't have, we didn't have a national denomination. That's all separation church and state meant. So from that standpoint, they, they do all this. And that first proclamation where that John Adams was telling Abigail, he wrote her about six weeks later. He said, Abigail, he said, you're not going to believe what's happened. He said, remember that day of prayer and fasting we had? <laughs> and then he goes through and says, the stuff happening, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. He said, Colonel Smith and a group of his men just captured a British fort. So, that's what we're supposed to do, right? No, 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 not back then. We didn't have a military. We were British citizens. Great Britain was our military. We didn't have a military. Now, this is, I got two kids in, in, in military right now, two active duty. This is no disrespect to any officer, but the way they built the army in the American Revolution was... If you could get a bunch of your neighbors to enlist with you, you got to be their colonel. So it's a real simple promotion process. So when he says Colonel Smith and a group of his men has just captured a British fort, what he said is Farmer Smith and a bunch of his neighbors just took over a British fort. That was amazing. That wasn't supposed to happen because it's the best military in the world. And then he said, and, and we've captured a 20-gun British man of war, and we've captured a 64-gun British man of war, which is really amazing because we didn't have a navy. Well, well we kind of had a navy. If you ever want to see the American Navy, you go to Washington, D.C., the Smithsonian Museum of American History, go up on the third floor, and they've got the Navy sitting right there. It's a gunboat Philadelphia. It's not much more than a rowboat with a cannon each end. I mean, literally. There you go. That's the gunboat Philadelphia. Oh, yeah, we captured a 64-gun British. Really? With that? So it's amazing what's going on. John Adams... And John Adams was at a tavern. Tavern is the word for restaurants, not a bar saloon like we think today. Tavern's where you went to eat. And, and so he's there, and he's listening to people talk, and they're all talking about all this amazing stuff that's going on. And they came to a conclusion. So what was the conclusion they came to? John Adams reported to Abigail. He said, Abigail, he said, this is what they think. He said, it appears to me the eternal Son of God is operating powerfully against the British nation. He said, there's no question God's weighing in this because there's no other way to explain what's going on. And so they looked for God's hand, saw God's hand. Matter of fact, they saw it so often that by 1778, George Washington wrote a letter to one of his generals, Thomas Nelson. Thomas Nelson, General Thomas Nelson, also is a signer of the Declaration. And he wrote Thomas, he says, Thomas, you and I have been in battle so much together. We've seen so much together. He said, he said that he must, come on there. He said that he, the hand of providence has been so conspicuous in all this that he must be worse than an infidel that lacks faith and more than wicked that hath not gratitude enough to acknowledge his obligations. Thomas, as much as we've seen, the hand of providence, God's hand has been so apparent in this that if, if, if you don't feel an obligation to thank God, he, he said, you're, you're more than an infidel. You're worse than an infidel. You're just flat wicked if you don't feel an obligation to thank God because of all we've seen. See, that's Washington reporting on what he's seen. The hand of God has been so conspicuous in all this that you've got to be worse than a pagan. You've got, you got to be wicked if you don't feel an obligation to thank God. So that's the way they saw the revolution. We finally get to the end of it. We finish it in 1781. At that point in time, the British lay down their arms, and so for the first time, it doesn't matter what the king says anymore. And the reason this is significant is 150 years earlier, the kings had passed a law that said you cannot print any Bible in English in America because we'd had a national established church. Whatever the king was is what we are. He's Anglican, we'll be Anglican. He's Catholic, we'll be Catholic. And so the government tells you what Bible you can and can't use. We're not allowed to print any 
any Bible in English in America. Now, we can print them in other languages. The first Bible printed in America is by John Eliot, the Apostle of the Indians, in 1661, 1663. 1661 is the Old Testament. 1663 is the New Testament, or excuse me, New Testament first and Old Testament. They put them together, 1663. So the first Bible printed in America is 1663, but it's in the Massachusetts Indian language. It's not in English. It's illegal to print a Bible in English in America. So we printed them in Ojibwe and Shawnee and Cherokee and Russian and French and Latin and everything you can think of except English. But once we win the Battle of Yorktown, now we can. Within 11 months, the first English-language Bible rolled off the presses in America. It is this Bible. It's called the Bible of the American Revolution. It was printed by the official printer of Congress, Robert Aiken. You can see his name there. He is the guy who prints the congressional records. He print, does all the printing for Congress. The official printer of Congress prints the first English-language Bible in America. Now, they printed 10,000 back then. There's only about eight left in the world in private hands today. I've got one of the eight. And so this, this little Bible, it's not little. It's, it's about to, I'll show you the size it is here in just a minute. It starts on the inside with this. This section right here. It tells you uh, right here, and see, it talks about the congressional committee that oversaw this project. It talks about the chaplains who monitored it to make sure that the, there wasn't a typo in it, make sure we're not changing God's word. So we got the two chaplains looking over this to make sure it's accurate to the scriptures. And then down here at the bottom, it has a congressional endorsement. It says, Resolved, the United States and Congress assembled to recommend this edition of the Bible to the inhabitants of the United States. You're kidding me. First Bible printed in English in America has a congressional endorsement in front of it? Yes, it absolutely does. As a matter of fact, that Bible was done when Robert Aiken explained to Congress why that this Bible needed to be done. That actual memorial to Congress still exists. It's in the records. Uh, it's in the National Archives Library of Congress. And this is what Congress has told us. that this will be a neat addition to the Holy Scriptures for the use of schools. They said, right, let's do it. Congress approved it. That Bible came rolling off the presses in, in September of 1782. So here's the actual handwritten document, a neat edition of the Bible for the use of school. Wait a minute, you're telling me the founding fathers didn't want the Bible in schools? Then how did we get all those founders I showed you earlier? How did we get the Supreme Court cases? How did we get the handwritten documents? How did we get a Bible that's actually endorsed by Congress if they didn't want the Bible in schools? See, that's how little we know about our own history. It's been so twisted in the last 50 years, everybody thinks it's exactly the opposite. Now, this is 1783. We're two years after the end of the Revolution. Now the peace treaty is being signed. These three Americans signed the peace treaty. John Jay on the left, John Adams in the center, Ben Franklin on the right. They're the three that, that signed that peace treaty. And here's the peace treaty. And if you ever want to see the peace treaty, go to the sixth floor of the State Department, the John Quincy Adams drawing room. You get to see it. And over there on the left are, are the three wax seals. The first one is David Hartley. But the three bottom seals, you see John Adams, Ben Franklin, and John Jay. But I want you to see the title of the document that made America an independent nation. See that? In the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. I could be wrong, but I think that's Christian. Is that? <laughs> nah, I can't be. Those guys were all a bunch of atheists, agnostics, and deists. Really? The document that secures American independence starts with a Trinitarian invocation in the name of the most holy and undivided trinity. You see, when you look back at the documents, look at what's there. John Adams, no-brainer. The general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. Now, we hear exactly the opposite today. I love collecting articles that, that say the opposite. Uh, for example, L.A. Times, America's unchristian beginnings. The founding fathers were deists who rejected the divinity of Jesus. This article ran on the East Coast. The authors of the Declaration were enemies of Christ. 
and here's what you got to let the professors weigh in. The founding fathers were not Christians. Wait a minute. But see, that's, that's what we're told today. That's what we get in academics. That's what we get in books. That's what we get in editorials and newspapers. So these guys weren't Christians. They, they were not Christians. I have a lot of fun with this. I, I take this slide, and I often I speak at universities and law schools across the nation, and I'll often put that slide up, and I will ask students, who do you recognize up there? Call them by name. And they say, well, there's Thomas Jefferson, and, 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 and there's Ben Franklin. And then it gets real quiet. Wait a minute. There's 56 guys up there. Keep going. I've only had one school one time give me a third name. One time somebody recognized John Adams. Other than Jefferson Franklin, I've never had a school, and I'm talking really bright law schools, Duke and others, I've never had them give me more than two. I say, well, let me see if I can help you a little bit. Let's go to the left side of the screen. We'll go across the front there. There's Richard Henry Lee. Beside him, you have Sam Adams. Beside Sam Adams is George Clinton. Uh, right there looking backward, the opposite direction is Charles Carroll. The guy on the front row leaning down on his elbow, that's Robert Morris. Uh, beside Robert Morris, you have Benjamin Rush. Beside Benjamin Rush, you have Elbridge Jerry. Uh, beside Elbridge Jerry, you have Robert Treat Payne. I can just go through the other names. They say, who? I've never heard those names before. Isn't it interesting that we've all been trained to recognize the two least religious founding fathers? We can find Jefferson Frank. Well, they're all like Jefferson Frank. Were they really? See, that's what we get told, but that's not accurate at all. Let's take John Witherspoon. John Witherspoon right there, he is the Reverend Dr. John Witherspoon. He's the best-known gospel evangelist in his generation. He literally is the Billy Graham of his age. The guy is responsible for a dozen... He's got a dozen volumes of gospel sermons. They were all bestsellers. People loved them. And he's also responsible for this work right here. This is original. This is America's very first family Bible. John Witherspoon did this so that families can have Bible studies together. Now, John Witherspoon, with all these writings, he served on 100 committees in Congress. He is active in politics. 100 committees in Congress he served on. He's on the, the Board of War, which is George Washington's boss. They're the, they're the ones who were in charge of the war. So John Witherspoon, you read his political writings, you find statements like this. He says, I entreat you in the most earnest manner to believe in Jesus Christ, for there is no salvation in any other, Acts 4.12. If you're not reconciled to God through Jesus Christ... If you're not clothed with the spotless robe of his righteousness, you must forever perish. That's, I'm not used to atheists talking like that. I mean, this just messes me up when they talk like that. I, I, I don't know. Then you've got folks, in addition to John Witherspoon, take Benjamin Rush. We talked about him earlier. Dr. Rush, very cool guy. Uh, a couple of things that he did. I already mentioned to you he started the first Bible society. This is the constitution for the first Bible society in America. Now, why would he start a Bible society? He said, if we can get Americans to read the Bible, he said, two things will happen. He said, number one, they'll become Christians. They'll find out how to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. He said, number two, he said, if they will read the Bible and obey it, he said, we'll solve all of our social problems. We won't have crime or slavery. He went through all the things we wouldn't have. So he wanted to get a Bible in the hands of every American. And in looking to do so, he came up with this. This is the first stereotyped or first mass-produced Bible in the history of the United States. He did this Bible, found a way to print Bibles very cheaply so that you could buy Bibles cheap. You can give them out to your friends, get them in God's Word. Benjamin Rush did that. Benjamin Rush, I've already told you how politically active he was and what all he was involved with, one of the three most notable founding fathers, according to John Adams. He's got tons of writings. And when you read the writings of Benjamin Rush, you see things like this. My only hope of salvation 
is in the infinite, transcendent love of God manifested to the world by the death of his son upon the cross. Nothing but his blood will wash away my sins. I rely exclusively upon it. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Could be wrong. That sounds a little evangelical to me, just slightly. (laughs) Then you've got folks like Roger Sherman. Roger Sherman is the only founding father who signed all four founding documents. Article Association, 1774. Declaration of Independence, 1776. uh, The... Articles of Confederation, 1781, U.S. Constitution, 1787. Matter of fact, he's the third most active member of the Constitutional Convention. He's the guy who gave us a bicameral system, House and Senate. He's also the guy who gave us the Electoral College, which is really key, because the Electoral College means that states have a voice and people have a voice. If it wasn't for the Electoral College, no presidential candidate would ever come to New Mexico. They would run up the West Coast and down the East Coast, have everything they need, because that's where the majority of the population is. But because the Electoral College, no, you've got to visit New Mexico, you've got to go to Oklahoma, you got to to make a trip to Nebraska. You've got to see South Dakota. You're going to have to go over to Montana. See, the states have a voice and the people have a That's what he did. Now, this guy right here is also a theologian. He's a professor of divinity at Yale University. He wrote the doctrinal creed for his denomination. He is also a judge. And he has a ton of writings. And when you read his writings, you find things like this. God commands all men everywhere to repent. He also commands them to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and has assured us that all who do repent and believe shall be saved. He said, oops, back up. It took off on its own. He said, God has promised to bestow eternal blessings on all those who are willing to accept him on the terms of the gospel. That is, in a way of free grace through the atonement. Sounds pretty orthodox to me. Ought to. He's a professor of divinity. He wrote the doctrinal creed for his entire denomination. Look what the newspaper said about him in the day. Now, this is the Washington, D.C. newspaper. It says, Roger Sherman. You see the date up there, 1837. It says, the volume which he consulted more than any other was the Bible. It was his custom at the commencement of every session of Congress to purchase a copy of the Scriptures, to peruse it daily, and to present it to one of his children on his return. There's another guy who reads the Bible every year. He's in Congress. He's in Congress a long time, too. He takes a Bible every session of Congress, reads it as the Lord shows him stuff. He annotates it, puts it out in the margin, writes it out. When he gets home, he gives it to one of his kids. And the kids go, whoa, this is a keepsake. Dad's really famous. And he was. He was really famous back then. We don't know him today. Famous back then. And by the way, it took him a while to get a Bible to all of his kids. He had 15 kids. So you've got to be in Congress a long time and read the Bible a lot to be able to give a Bible to all your kids. Roger Sherman. You've got John Hancock. People recognize John Hancock. John Hancock is the first governor of Massachusetts. Now, he's the president of Congress for two separate terms. And John Hancock, 22 times, called his state to days of prayer. Prayers, you see this one. This is a day of public fasting, humiliation, and prayer. That's one. He would also have Thanksgiving, just like Congress had done. 22 times. What does he have Massachusetts pray and fast about? Well, here's some of the prayer requests he has. Pray that the kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ may be established in peace and righteousness among all nations of the earth. What do you think would happen to a governor today who put that in a proclamation? They'd get their brains beat in. Here's another prayer request. Different proclamation. Pray that all nations may bow to the scepter of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that the whole earth may be filled with his glory. Here's another prayer. Pray and confess our sins before God and implore his forgiveness to the merits and mediation of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Here's another one. Pray that the spiritual kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, may be continually increasing until the whole earth shall be filled with his glory. Can you imagine the state of Massachusetts praying and fasting for that? They did back then. 
That's what their government called. And by the way, the second governor of Massachusetts was Sam Adams. I've got the same proclamations from Sam Adams. I mean, these guys, these are part of those 1,400 times they called people to prayer. Right here is Francis Hopkinson. Francis Hopkinson is a signer of the Declaration. He was uh, appointed a federal judge by George Washington. He is the guy who designed the American flag. See right over in the corner, American flag? Francis Hopkinson designed the American flag. But he's also a church music director and a choir leader. Now, Francis, what he did was he took the entire book of Psalms and set the book of Psalms to music so that we could sing the psalms like David has sung the psalms. This is actually the original work. This is from 1767. It is the first book in American history to have musical notation. It actually has musical notes so you can see what the melody is. This is from a signer of the Declaration of Francis Hopkinson. Can you imagine putting the entire book of psalms to music? For that, imagine, for that matter, can you imagine putting Psalms 119 to music? Oh, my gosh. And, and if you got Psalms 119 set to music, how many church services would it take you to sing Psalms 119? <laughs> Psalms 119 in this hymnal, a hymn, 32 pages long, one hymn. Try that some Sunday morning. Let's have a 32-page long hymn. See how that goes over. Founding Father Francis Hobson, by the way, so you can see it a little closer, that's the inside of that book. That's the first book in American history to have musical notation on the inside that came from Sign of the Declaration. Uh, you have Charles Carroll. Charles Carroll, right over there on the left, Charles Carroll is the last surviving sign of the Declaration. Now, Charles Carroll lived to be 95 years old. It's amazing. Franklin was 81 at the convention. He was 95. Charles Carroll, 90, remember the average lifespan, you know, 33. He lives to be 95. He, he outlives his kids. He outlives his grandkids. One of his family members wrote him one day and said, Charles, you will die someday. And when you do die, are you ready to meet God when you die? And he answered back with this. This is a letter that he wrote back to his family members. Uh, up top, it's dated 1825. That makes him 89 years old. At the bottom, it says Charles Carroll of Carrollton. That's the same way he signed the Declaration of Independence. He said, am I ready to meet God when I die? He said, of course I am. Why? This is his answer right there. You see where the arrow points? It's, he says, I'm ready to meet God because he says, on the mercy of my Redeemer, I rely for salvation and on his merits, not on the works I've done in obedience to his precepts. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. By grace you are saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. So another one of the founding fathers, very evangelical. And by the way, he was the last man to die among the 56 signers of the Declaration. On the 50th anniversary of the Declaration, 1826, there were three of them left alive. But on that day, on the 4th of July, 1826, both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson died that day, left Charles Carroll the only one left alive. He's the only one left alive. At that point, New York City writes him and says, Charles, as one of the original 13 colonies, we have an original copy of the Declaration of Independence. And this is an original of the Declaration. This is what was printed on July the 4th. What we see with all the signatures was not done until August the 2nd. July the 4th, it just had John Hancock and Charles Thompson. They're the only two on it. That's the original declaration. said, we've got an original declaration. You're the last survivor of those who created this nation, those who birthed this nation. You're the last survivor of those who put this declaration together. We're going to send it to you. We want you to write your thoughts on it. What do you think now, 50 years later? As you look at America, what crosses your mind? We're going to display the city hall in New York City. So he wrote, sent it back. This is what he wrote on the Declaration of Independence. 
He says, I'm grateful to Almighty God for the blessings which, through Jesus Christ our Lord, he's conferred on my beloved country. When I look back over what God has done in America, I can't thank God enough for what Jesus Christ has done for this. Oh, we're not a Christian nation. Oh, no, they're a bunch of atheist agnostics. Really? Really? Wait a minute. The signers of the Declaration were enemies of Christ? How did we get that? We get that because we can name two signers of the Declaration. as far as it goes. See, back in old days, we knew differently. As a matter of fact, we've taken an old 1848 public school textbook and we reprinted that textbook. It's called Lives of the Signers. And what we did in Lives, come on there, what we did in Lives of the Signers, just repent a public school textbook, that textbook had six, eight, ten pages on every one of the 56. Told you their faith, their character, their family, their sacrifices, their occupation. Every kid in America could tell you about the 56 because we studied it in school. We can't anymore. See, we even have an old public school textbook from back in the early 1900s on the wives of the signers. And what the ladies went through is unbelievable. People like Elizabeth Lewis as a POW in the war. I mean, what they did to her as a POW, unbelievable. She died as a result of, of the abuse and torture they, they put on her. We don't even know who the women are and what they did. But we used to in school. We used to study that. See, we used to know exactly what the men and the women did in the American Revolution. It's just not part of who we are anymore. So as we look at this thing, and you look back at what we had. This is why John Adams said... Very simply, he said, the general principles on which the fathers achieved independence were the general principles of Christianity. End of story. Now, 200 years later, we got all these PhDs who are so much smarter than the founding fathers. No, they were all wrong. I didn't live back there, never knew them, never saw them, but I'm telling you, they're all wrong. How silly is that? It's kind of like, you know, sometimes I joke today, how many PhDs does it take to make you stupid? And, and, And I mean that in the sense that we used to believe that original documents meant something. Now, my opinion about those documents means more than documents mean. And there's some really good PhD. I've got a PhD, and there's really good PhDs, and that's fine. But when you get on an agenda and it doesn't involve the truth, then you've got a problem. See, there's so much historical truth back there. There's so many documents you can point to, so many handwritten items that we can use that contradict what's being taught today. So it's there, and by the way, in the first part we talked about Joshua 1.8, that we're blessed because literally we took God's Word and applied it in ways we didn't do it perfectly. We had a lot of flaws. But in the same way, Psalm 33.12, blessed is that nation whose God is the Lord. When's the last time Congress opened two hours of prayer and Bible study? As a matter of fact, when's the last time Christians had two hours of prayer and Bible study in one sitting? That's what we did to open the Congress back then. 1,400 times we called the people to prayer and fasting or prayer and thanksgiving. See, we really were serious about our faith, and we lived it out in a very public way. George Washington, after 45 years of public service, September the 17th, about September the 19th or 20th, actually, of 1796, he retires from public life. 45 years, he's been a soldier, he's been a legislator, he's been a commander-in-chief, he's a U.S. president. And as he retires, he gives what's called his farewell address. And in the farewell address, he says, My fellow citizens, we've all gone through this together, but let me remind you what we all know. Let me remind you the principles that have made us different. Because at the time he did his farewell address, historians called that period the age of revolution. Everybody had a revolution except America. You had the French Revolution three times. You had the Haitian Revolution. You had the Greek Revolution. You had the Italian Revolution, the Helvetican Revolution. Everybody's having a revolution except America. We're stable. We've been stable for eight years. We're not even thinking about a revolution George Washington said, of all the habits and dispositions that lead to political prosperity, 
Our politics is prosperous in America. We're stable. We're, we're different from other nations. Everything that makes our politics different from other nations, he said religion and morality are indispensable supports. The two things that make us different from other nations politically, religion and morality. Now, he's talking politically. Political prosperity. Why do new church prosperity, family prosperity? Political prosperity, religion and morality. He continues. He said, in vain would that man that claimed the tribute of patriotism who should labor to subvert these great pillars. That's his litmus test for patriotism. You want to know a patriot? Ask George Washington. He had him at Valley Forge. He had him throughout the war for eight years. He said, in vain would that man claim the tribute of patriotism. In other words, I don't let anyone call themselves a patriot if they try to undermine religion and morality from politics. That's his litmus test. That's what he's just reminded the nation. We all knew that. And by the way, that farewell address was so significant that you'll find that in public schools back then, for the first eight years of school, students were required to take a written exam on four documents. The state constitution, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and George Washington's farewell address. We knew that thing backward and forward. In the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln actually issued an order to Union troops and said, if you're not on guard duty or if you're not out actually fighting, I want you to take the day off and read Washington's farewell address all day, and I want you to think about it and meditate on it. We did that? Yeah, we did that for generations because we knew this is what made America different. So religion and morality were the indispensable supports. Why is that significant? Because we're told in Psalm 11.3, very simply, the Bible tells us that if the foundations be destroyed, what do the righteous do? What are the foundations? It's not our economic prosperity. Foundations aren't our educational achievements. Foundations are religion and morality. They're the indispensable supports. So we'll talk tomorrow more about what we can do as citizens to kind of help move back in this thing. But the first thing we got to do is get our mind renewed because we just we don't know the founders, we don't know the history, we don't know what happened back then. The, the records are there. There's cool, cool, cool stuff back in America. So I want to start tonight by kind of setting the tone of what America had been. We've, we've so convinced ourselves of all the negatives about America that we don't need. Matter of fact, uh, Tim is one of our six speakers at Wall Builders, and, and Tim was just having a debate over Facebook with a professor, and the professor said, there is nothing bad in the world but what America has caused it. Really? I thought the, I thought the Roman Empire fought, fell before America existed. I didn't realize we were responsible for the fall of the Roman so nothing bad in the world has happened except America caused it. Uh, we've got interns at Wall Builders today. I had them uh, this morning. Tim and I were talking with them this morning. And, and the stuff that we're getting now out of school is fairly unbelievable. As a matter of fact, um, there's a group called American Council of Trustees and Alumni, ACTA, A-C-T-A. They, uh, every year, look at U.S. News World Report. U.S. News World Report puts out every year the most elite colleges and universities in America. This year, there's 76 on the list. So the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, these college guys, went through those 76 schools looking at how you get a history degree. These are American colleges. How do you get a history degree in these American colleges? Remember, if you went to college, history, any degree, you needed about 30 hours in your major, whatever that is. So 30 hours in science or 30 hours in whatever. So you're talking, you know, the better part of two to three semesters right on that subject. So history degree now, only 12 universities in America require students to have even one American history course to get a history degree. 
you're going to be a history teacher, you get a history degree, and you only, only 12 of the 76. So we're talking only about 16% of the elite colleges have you take a course in American history to be a history teacher. Are you kidding? Right now, today, in America, only 3% of colleges teach the free market economic system, which is why those kids that have lined up behind Bernie, why wouldn't they want that? Because they've never heard what the free market system is in their life because, again, education has so failed of teaching foundational principles and truth. That's why we have to do it. It's real easy. This is what we did in the American Revolution. You had a British education system that was very biased toward the British. You had a British news media very biased toward the British. You had a British, the British were in control. We just committed, we created committees of correspondence where we just shared the word with one another. Those committees of correspondence is now Internet and it's Facebook and it's our social media and it's our phone trees. And it's, we're right where we were 200 years ago, which is great news. We've got a pattern that says we can do this. By the way, don't ever get discouraged over where we are. You look at the American Revolution, the way we see it today, patriots, they want it. No, only 25% of Americans supported independence from Great Britain. Only 25%. 25% opposed independence from Great Britain. 50% didn't care as long as they ended up on the winning side. If it didn't bother them, they didn't matter which side won. I just, just leave me alone. So you only have 25% of Americans who wanted independence, and of those who actually participated in independence... Only 8% of Americans actually participated and did anything in the American Revolution. We want a whole revolution with 8% of the people. Don't ever think we have to have big numbers. It just doesn't have to be. Don't ever get discouraged. Don't ever get knocked down. Look at the model we had. Founding fathers, committees of correspondence, educate, share with others. Get biblically educated. Read the Declaration of Independence. Read those sermons that gave us the Declaration. Get your mindset back right. Read the Bible through once every year. That's the kind of foundation we had that did this thing. So that's what I want you to see tonight. Tomorrow we're going to get a little more specific on how that's applied, how, how it goes through government, and what we look for to be able to combat some of this stuff. Uh, but thanks, guys, for letting me share with you tonight. God bless you.